Have you made an honest review? Jump onto fifthwrist.com and read real takes by real owners about their watches. And of course, get involved and write about what's on your wrist. Fifthwrist.com is your independent space to talk watches. Welcome to the Independent Thinking Show for Fifth Wrist Radio. This is a place dedicated to showcasing the great people doing interesting things in the world of horology. My name is Roman, and today I'm joined by my friend and co-host Adam from Medium Watch. Hey Adam, how are you? Very well, how are you? I'm excellently. So great to have you uh, on the show. I'm so excited to make another show with you. We've been on a bit of a roll lately with some very, very cool guests. <laughs> it's been crazy. Yeah, well, today's no exception. Uh, we've got a very cool guest joining us today. Uh, he's someone who's probably very well known to the American watch community, but perhaps less so here in Australia, uh, Mr. Rob Kaplan of Topper Jewelers. Hello, Rob. Welcome. Hey, guys. It's great to be on your show, and I'm uh, honored that you guys chose to have me. So looking forward to having this uh, chat with you guys. Thanks for joining yeah, thanks for joining us. And the way this sort of came up, Rob, is we had another guest on the show. We had Asher Rapkin from Collective Horology on the show. Mm-hmm. And what we were talking about, one of the topics we were talking about was retailers and watch communities and sort of the future of that particular segment of watch collecting and how how do retailers particularly stay relevant in the you know increasingly online world. So I'm really, really excited because Topper Jewelers came up as an example of, or shining example really of how a retailer grows and fosters a community. So I'm really, really fortunate to have you on the show and have a good chat about it. Well, I'm also excited because um, I also know that one of your uh, favorite watches is one of our limited editions. And uh, I feel like you've, you have like firsthand experience as to, you know, how it is that we like to communicate our passion, you know, for the business and for trying to be interesting and relevant, at least one of the ways, um, and that's through the creation of special limited editions. And um, you, you have the Oris Diver 65 Topper Edition, which is, I think, probably, if it's not the most beloved piece we've ever done, it's definitely in the top two or three. So I feel so I, I'm excited to uh, be talking to somebody that definitely, you know, has you know, been influenced by, by our, by our desires to create interesting stuff. Absolutely. Well, I think that's a perfect segue into our wrist check and drink check then. <laughs> I think you might've stolen my thunder, but that's all good. <laughs> so we might start with Adam then. <laughs> Adam, what's on your wrist and what's in your glass? Um, so I've got a Nomos Tangente Sport, and uh, the reason I chose it is because Nomos is a brand that Topper has worked with. Unfortunately, I don't have any limited editions, uh, but nonetheless, felt like it matched. Yet. Well, that's a perfect choice because uh, that watch led to the creation of our first ever limited edition, which was the Topper Tangente, which was the idea of taking a watch that was loomed, but instead of making the watch sportier, just giving it a slight dressier tone. Hmm. Uh, so if you look at the Topper Tangente 75th anniversary, um, it was trying to bring a loomed piece, but going in the other direction from the Tangente Sport. So it went to a deep white lacquer, and it also had the subtlest uh, tagging we've ever done of a limited edition, where it was for the 75th anniversary of the store, 
the only way you could tell it was the 75th anniversary was that we made the loom dots on seven and five blue, whereas all the other ones were green. Hmm. Uh, so we tried to do a Bauhaus minimalist tagging of our anniversary on that piece. Uh, so perfect choice. Yeah, and I didn't know there was that Easter egg. Thanks for telling us about it. <laughs> I'll send you. I'll send you pictures of the loom if you do show notes uh, in a picture of the watch. That would be fantastic. So. And in my mug is herbal tea because it is five o'clock. Oh, oh dear! What's nice. happening to the alcohol intake on this show? Goodness, uh, Rob. <laughs> we might send it your way. <laughs> Okay. Well, if you might be wearing the same watch as me, which means there could only be 98 people in the world wearing the same watch as us. Uh, so I'm wearing the, the Topper Edition uh, Oris Diver 65 from 2016. And in true NorCal fashion, I am drinking Spindrift sparkling water with a touch of lemon. Wow. That is actually also one of my favorites. Excellent. Oh, there you go. What's well, see? It's not a it's not a brand that I'm familiar with. Um, uh, but that's cool. That sounds good. Uh, well, um, I think, yeah, okay, beautiful. Also, so on my wrist, and this is you know fifth wrist radio first. We've got matching wrist checks. We've never had that before. So as Rob was saying, the watch I have on my wrist is exactly the same. So I won't go over uh, <laughs> the specs and everything. Um, one interesting sort of fact about that watch is I've owned, so there's only been a hundred made. I've owned three of them. So what tends to, so literally, I'm not even joking. Um, so every time I've bought one of them or tra tracked one down, because they're really hard to find uh, on the secondary market, as soon as I buy it, as soon as I put a picture on it, usually there'd be two or three friends or my Instagram buddies or something begging me to either sell it or trade it with them. Oh, have you been looking for one of those for ages? And, you know, I'm sort of, I'm, a, I'm easily swayed. You know, I'm a sensitive soul. So I usually trade it away and then immediately regret it and then have to try and find another one. Uh, so, yeah, so if you've got number 25 or number 47, um, I've probably I've owned that. There's someone, um, Green Bean on Instagram, he's owned four of the, the topper Nomos World Timer Burlingame editions for the exact same thing you're talking about. Oh, good. So, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm glad that's not a unique problem. <laughs> four of the 30. Crazy. <laughs> At least four. Uh, that's that's crazy. Um, well, Rob, maybe a good way to sort of start is maybe tell us, give us sort of a really short bi biography of what Topper Jewelers is, um, and then we can sort of dive into some of the goodies and stuff that we're going to talk about. So Topper Jewelers started in 1940, started as sort of a mid-level jewelry store in the Merced Modesto area. And for those of you that are not familiar with the specific cities in Northern Cal, which I'm guessing is a huge percentage of your audience, um, Modesto is best represented by the movie American Graffiti by Francis Ford Coppola. Uh, think of, you know, small towns, drag racing, uh, just, you know, salt of the earth America. Um, so that's the or that's where Topper started. It was purchased by my great uncle in the late 40s. And my grandfather uh, ended up buying the business from him. My father went to work for my grandfather in the 60s. My brother joined in the 80s, and I joined around 2000. Around the 90s, we, we started shifting away from the Modesto Merced area and decided to build one standalone store in Burlingame, which is the city that Russ and I grew up in, um, which is basically halfway between Silicon Valley and, 
and um, I'm sorry, halfway between Palo Alto and San Francisco, um, which is dead center of Silicon Valley. It used to be like 15, 15 years ago, we would say it was on the edge of Silicon Valley, but really it's now completely solid. There's just as much Silicon Valley in San Francisco as, um, as, as there is to the south of us. Um, and that other aspect of the business went away um, as the years have gone on in the, I'd say, starting in the 2000s, we just became very active on watch forums. 2015 was when we really started doing special edition watches, um, started by doing them as a celebration of our 75th anniversary. And the piece that you and I are wearing today was really a transitional piece for us because that was the, the piece where we made a big design change, which was let's not make watches that are referential to us, like the Nomos I was talking about earlier. Let's instead just make the best watch that we can and make something that's interesting in and of itself and sort of fills a niche for those who like sort of deep cuts and things that are slightly different than what the manufacturer is offering. And let's make pieces that spit, speak to a really specific collector audience. And um, that's something that we've really tried spending an increasing amount of our energy on as the, as the years have gone on. Um, we're also a standalone authorized dealer. We sell over a dozen brands. We sell everything from um, G-Shock to uh, Grand Seiko, H. Moser, Omega, Glossita Original. We try to cover things that we think are cool and interesting, whether it's $200 or $50,000. So what was it like taking over a family business that was founded by your father? And uh, another question I have related to that is, I noticed both you and your father are lawyers. Has that influenced how the business has operated, your desire to you know, form all these contracts or these unique arrangements with different companies um, for these proprietary products? Um, so I never, I never really thought about, like, taking over the business or not taking over the business. Um, I just always tried to play my part as best I could. And my father passed away at 80 years mm -hmm. old. He died on a Sunday and he was work and he was working on that Saturday. Oh, wow. He was really happy with how the day went. So like he, he was in it till the, like the, till the day he died. And so, you know, the, and after he passed, my brother and I went to work the next day and kept things going and planned the funeral and, you know, did, did, our, did our best. So there was never really any kind of a transfer process until nature made the, the transfer process happen. So um, I always knew that that would happen at one day. I think whenever we lose a parent, it's always sooner than, than we wish that it was. Um, but always talk to us and was always, um, he lived at the store. He worked at the store six days a week until he was 80 years old. And um, I think a lot of, of people in the Bay Area have incredibly fond recollections of him helping them with engagement rings and diamonds or, you know, you know helping them with watches too. Um, but he, he, he was just a great, a great man. He, he taught me work ethic um, and he also taught me that a law school education was an incredible education with no matter what, whatever you do in life. So um, I think that when I studied in law school, like doing, like looking at flow charts of uh, 
of of case law and sort of how 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 you would study for units and looking at those those flowcharts translated pretty well to understanding uh, collections of, of watch companies and being able to sort of visually see the, the combination of art history and technology that people put into all of these things and to be able to look at a manufacturer's like whole product offering. Um, and of course, uh, it, I think also taught you, you know, how to get along with different companies and make sure that everyone's benefiting from relationships. So I, th I think the training has been incredibly useful both on both the creative and as a business front. That's fantastic to hear. That's a really moving story. And I think the that sort of family business ethic, I think, translates quite well into kind of what you're doing and perhaps even into the choice of brands you carry. I mean, thinking of somebody like H. Moser, which is another, you know, one of those companies that's run by two brothers, you know, also with a strong connection to their father who is right. a stalwart in the industry. There's a really nice parallel there as well. So you and your brother run the business together. Do you have separate domains that you know that you occupy and operate, or is it collaboration across the whole board between the two of you? So Russ is like the the president of the company, and Russ oversees everything, like the total operations of the company. Um, he also is in charge of. He has a lot more responsibility and deserves a lot more credit than he does. Um, but he um, he also does all the jewelry buying. He does all the diamond buying. He, he deals with tons of things. And he also has a pretty sizable um, watch, uh, watch customer base. And he really enjoys, you know, the creativity of the limited edition projects and is a great person to bounce things off. Um, my role is 100% watches. Um, as time has gone on, you know, I, I, I get to speak to all of my friends and customers that I've uh, acquired over the, over the years, and I get to work on projects. And it seems like more and more of my time in the last year or two has been taken up by projects. And I, I just, I love that. I love trying to do daring creative things. And so I, 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 I mean, I, I work like my father did in terms of hours, but I don't really feel like I work. I just feel like I just do my thing. That's the dream. <laughs> I just feel really lucky. I mean, I get to talk to people about watches all day and I get to work on, you know, pushing the edges with different designers and, um, and, and different creative forces. I, I can't imagine doing anything else. And uh, does the next generation want to get involved? Well, you may have noticed that I... Uh, my my brother's kids are out because um, his oldest daughter is um, she's a resident doctor, and his son is an incredibly successful tech consultant. So I could see theoretically, maybe his son could theoretically get involved, but th their paths are pretty much set. Um, my my kids are much younger, so I have a fourteen year old. Um, and I have a, a 22 month old, I will say the 22 month old's first word was watch after, <laughs> after dad, dad. and, um, before, before bed, that would be when we would do our final check after story time, she would always point to the watch and say, watch. So there's good hope for her. And, uh, she has her own highlight on Instagram that we started on top of her Instagram is Emma because my, my, my watch forum nickname is Robert Topper, 
Um, that's like my watch you seek and time zone login. So I've created a, a an Instagram name Emma at Topper. So <laughs> I'm just six months old. That like she actually sold uh, aggressive timing habits. It was a big <laughs> uh, big force in the Bay Area. Um, she sold him a, a pre-owned Oyster Perpetual when mm. she was five months old, and we have a picture of her like handing it over to him and. Uh, she, he definitely said that she provided the best customer service that has ever been provided at Topper. So, oh, that's uh, adorable. So we have, we have, we have. And just, I just wanted to give a shout out to Aggressive Timing Habit, who I just bought a watch from, uh, literally on Instagram last week. So, yeah, <laughs> it's a small world. Okay. Oh, yeah, we, we, we love you, Bo. Um, but um, so when she is a teenager, I'm going to have the biggest dad moment of all time because from the time she was six months old this poor innocent soul has been featured will have been featured on top of her instagram forever uh, do you know design um diana illustration uh, have you seen her stuff yep, yep. um anyway she, she uh she's she's doing a few pictures of emma around this oris launch uh, that are freaking fantastic so uh, oh that's awesome like one of them like watches like a swing and she's on the swing holding Oris bear. Um, oh, it's, very cool. it's really well done. Uh, so Emma is part of the story of Topper, um, <laughs> but whether she actually chooses Topper as her career, well, that will be one of the parental decisions that we all make that question of, will they do what we dream that they do or will they do what they want to do? And that will be my struggle probably 20 years from now. Uh, we all struggle. Oh, at least you're laying a good groundwork. <laughs> so, so Rob, let me ask you this. Does the location of your store make a difference? You know, we're talking about global world. You know, do you think, yeah, does it influence kind of how you do business, how you approach online or all of those sort of things being, you know, in the tech center, I think? That, that was a question that I felt like, I mean, all your questions are great questions, but I felt like that question really enables us to talk about what makes Northern California a special place on so many levels. Um, number one, it completely, like from a, even from a sense of one's own financial interest, it completely trains any sales associate who's halfway paying attention that you can never look at how somebody presents themselves outwardly and anticipate mm. that that would be any kind of a reflection of their intention because it is the most casual place in terms of how people dress. So um, that's enabled us, I think, to be appreciated as having a very laid back and, and conversational style when people come in and, and they visit with us. Um, so I, it enables us to have a relaxed atmosphere and it enables people to feel comfortable with our personality, no matter how casually they're, they're dressed. And usually it's super casual. Um, so there's that aspect. But more important, I feel like the, the people that live here are incredibly, at least the people that live here that visit us, are incredibly watch literate. And they're incredibly literate to what companies are doing interesting things, even if the name brand of that company is sort of off the radar from just a general consumer sense. So companies like Grand Seiko, um, H. Moser, um, both high end of G-Shock, things that would be really hard to sell in the Midwest, which is really dominated by 
the crown. Um, we have people that come in seeking, seeking this stuff. So being where we are, it gives us the confidence to really know that if we stock the store, do the vision that my brother and I have, that people are going to appreciate it and people are going to have a real educated sense of, you know, what are the sort of the interesting pieces that might be off the radar in many markets that you, that some markets might really struggle with. Um, we're, we're in a, in a buying group, um, with different stores from all over the country. And I know that when you, we tell some of those stores, the type of brands we feature and how our success is with them, it might be a very much harder to translate into a lot of markets. So we're very blessed that, um, I mean, Topper is located just in the town that we grew up in, but we're just very blessed that we're in a, a, a town with such a creative market where people really appreciate, you know, brands that aren't necessarily such pure status things, which really fits into the ethos of our store. Interesting. How do buying groups operate? Buying groups are, um, there, there are, there, so there's certain family-owned businesses that there are certain groups that different family-owned businesses can join. We're in one called Continental Buying Group, um, which um, is a group of stores throughout the country. And what's nice about them is that it allows us to provide certain benefits to our customers. Like if they're in, I don't know, if they're in Atlanta and their ring is, uh, you know, their diamond ring, you know, loses a prong. Uh, you know, there's a place that they can go and get it inspected and taken care of that, you know, we'll have a relationship with and a place to send them. Um, so buying groups are just ways that independents can, you know, use their collective power and just get, you know, better offerings on certain administrative or processing or vendor relations than they perhaps could if they were just by themselves. Doesn't really touch my world as much as it touches Russ on the jewelry and probably the admin world of the business. Oh, interesting. So, so Rob, can I just ask, uh, since taking over, you know, since your father's sad passing and since you and Russ really became more involved in the, in the business, has the range of brands that you carry in watches, we're talking watches now, uh, has the ran- range of brands changed? Do you think, did you, you know, did you revamp Absolutely. Um, but my father was really, um, I don't know that if he was still alive and, and he would in, in the, he passed in 2013, but if he was still alive, I think that he would have been on board with the moves that we made. Like the last watch that he had was a, a Glasutza original pilot watch. Oh, that was cool. a navigator I love that watch. watch. Mm-hmm. So, and, and like, like he, he had the, um, the panorama date that had the reset, um, that's one of my brother and I's most cherished pieces, the one that zeroes out when you press yep. the, the button on the side. So he loved that. That was an incredibly quality piece that, you know, maybe didn't have, you know, the universal re- recognition of, you know, some other things at its price point, but like Nomos, Grand Seiko, uh, Blanc Pond, uh, H. Moser, uh, G-Shock, all of, I mean, we've become more focused on different brands in different parts of the world where we've added a lot more Japanese brands, luxury Seiko. We didn't sell luxury Seiko while he was alive, like, um, like the, you know, the high end Seiko divers. Um, 
and we've um, you know we we've been dealing with companies that do a, a lot a lot of you know much smaller runs. But I think he would have loved all of it if he was if he was around. I mean, I think he would have. I, I can't think of a move that we've made that he wouldn't have been in favor of. Interesting. So it sounds like a lot of uh, brands with somewhat smaller followings. Uh, to what extent are you getting traffic locally versus from people abroad or tourists? Because I know in Boston, it seems like most of the customers in the shops are actually not locals. And all the shops have little signs in the doors that say, you know, we take union pay, which basically means we're taking Chinese credit cards. I mean, there's some of that, but the majority uh, the majority of our business is the, lo- is the local Bay Area market still. I mean, when we do unique limited editions, I mean, th- those are those are more a global a, a, a global scale of customer base, um, and and we do have some of the union pay. I mean, COVID has completely dried that up, though. I mean, we don't. I mean, the union pay tourist business is is incredibly down. Um, so by and large, it's I'd say almost all of it is just different American customers. Um, we do do. We have a lot of people that call us, and we, uh, of course, have e-com, and we have, um, you know, appointments and people that come and visit the store. Um, but the but the local business is is a very very large percentage of of you know what makes Topper run. It's really interesting with uh, you mentioning e- e-com, Rob, because in my memory, because from my you know from my watch forums days, I was certainly aware of you that you, that Topper had an online presence way earlier than a lot of other I would say bigger and more established retailers has that been a strategy you've sort of actively pursued just being there you know on the on the econ market early mm-hmm. I think so um, I mean that's you you want to you want to be able to give people be people be able to see what you have and people to be able to see you know what you think is sort of the best of breed from different brands um that you know and i think how you sort it and organize it and especially with with instagram like what you choose to promote and what you what you choose to feature i think is an incredibly important part of telling your story and and letting people know what what your what your voice is so i i think that i think that or early e-com and, and at the beginning it wasn't really transactional, but it was just having a web presence and, you know, Instagram of course has become much more important as years have gone by. Instagram is incredibly important. So Topper is unique in that it really has a voice in its products and that it's actually co-designing them, which is not a very common thing. Right. Now, how do you decide which brands you want to partner with? Uh, how do you decide how you're going to go about the collaboration? What is this co-design process? Um, it's different depending on the watch and what the goal is. So I'll give you an example. So the lacquer, are you familiar with the lacquer limited edition that we came out with? Right. So, um, so like that project came because we had a vision of a watch that we wanted to make, which was a pilot watch that had heat, heat fluid numbers and indices. And if anyone has made one under, if, if anyone has made one, we don't know what it is and we would assume someone would have pointed it out, but it might've been the first watch that was like that. And so we ended up with LACO because um, LACO was a company that was a traditional pilot watch company. 
but we knew that they could also sort of have this sort of like free jazz element where they could make things like the the Rad X, which was like a, a watch inspired by the Fallout video game universe. Um, and, you know, they could do things like simulating aging and patinaing. And though we didn't want to watch that use these specific techniques, we saw that they could do like traditional type A, type B flaggers, but also do these really intricate um, dial techniques. So we, we went to them specifically because we thought that they could make the watch that we wanted to make. Um, sometimes we have two projects coming up with uh, companies that we are not partners with. And um, in, I think the, the driving force behind both of these partnerships when, when they're announced will be that, you know, we just love the, the above and beyond everything. We just love the force of their personality and we love their attention to, to detail and we love, you know, the chance that now that we've got a reasonable, um, a reasonable following um, that we can help maybe bring their products to a new audience. Um, I should also point out that we, aside from just selling the, the small stuff, I mean, we do sell, I mean, Omega is our biggest brand. So we do sell some, a lot of mainstream stuff too. Um, but I, I think it's, it's exciting that we've got a couple of companies that um, we're going to be making things that they never probably would have made by themselves. Um, a lot of it's, a lot of the process starts with, you know, you decide if, you know, there's, there's, you know, mutual respect and interest. And then uh, you talk about sort of what's the open space, what would be an interesting story to tell? What haven't you done that we could maybe help you sort of push the envelope and what, and what does working with us as opposed to doing something just yourself, what kind of freedom does that provide you by being able to maybe do some things in your, in your, in your process or design language that you maybe wouldn't have done if it was just you. So I think that's, what's attractive to those companies. And then there's just the, you know, the excitement of trying to put something together that hasn't, you know, that just brings its own energy, putting it out there and watching the reaction. Um, but every process is different. Um, sometimes it's, you know, going with existing brands that we're already partners with. Most have been like that. Um, e each one sort of has its, its own story. Um, the process is, is, that's probably my favorite part of the business, uh, just seeing what happens. Hmm. What's really magical about limited editions is that they're a unique product. They provide a, a sense of differentiation. You can't really comparison shop them because they don't exist elsewhere. Is this the future of watch retail? And have you ever thought of just selling them exclusively and only doing limited editions? Um, I wouldn't want to do that because in a lot of instances, the brands that we feature, we have a really long history of providing these brands to our customer base. And we're not we're not the only people that have like we can we can provide great experiences with products that are made by manufacturers when they're great stories or or, or really well-made pieces so i wouldn't want to i wouldn't want to deny people people that and with some of the bigger brands doing these limited edition projects is like it's almost like a reward for you being a you know a, a loyal good partner and a proponent of the brand that the companies want to work with you. 
Um, sometimes with smaller companies, um, you can do one-offs, um, but we wouldn't want to change, you know, that we wouldn't want to a not have, you know, the curation of, of our partners, best watches when people come and visit. And we also, you know, wouldn't want to just be demanding that companies make special things for us. Is it the future of watch retail? I don't know, but I do know that we're proud of how it enables us to sort of show an artistic creativity to what we're doing um, that, you know, gives people a window to the thought process that goes behind what we do. I, I think that it's very important to us. Um, I, I, I think there will still be successful stores um, that don't do that, but, but the, the, they'll miss the, they'll miss the anxiety, terror, and, you know, and happiness that goes with <laughs> introducing something to the world and, you know, the, you know, and seeing what happens. So, I mean, that's, that, that is to truly feel alive is to watch the, the unfiltered internet react to one of your pieces. <laughs> What's what I find really uh, fascinating, and the reason I found you top of jewelers from across the world to get this particular Oris is your pieces clearly, your limited editions clearly come with a lot of sort of love and forethought and consideration. You know, it's not just you know doing a cosine dial or a you know different color dial for a thing. Right. You know, you actually take an existing product and actually tweak it in a way that's very watch enthusiast driven in a sense and i wonder if that's your personality coming through your own personal collecting coming through um i think i think a lot of it is um i mean we we are my brother and i are art collectors too um and that's that's a big part of it i i think that we also have spent years acutely listening and so if you take that diver 65 that you're wearing like years before that watch came out we were um, a Longine dealer and the most popular Longine, we still are, but the most popular watch that we had was the Legend Diver. And how many times do we listen to customers describe how the date we all cut into the cemetery of the, um, of the three o'clock and how much they would rather have the no date. Totally. And um, in the moment we saw that watch the the stock diver 65 in 2015 we just fell in love with like how funky it was how uh how beautiful it was how those markers looked with the the big blocks of loom and in the, the um the invert the 12963 mm. being out of inverted black like the dial I and mean, we fell in love with it and the second we saw it we were like oh my god nobody i mean if you knew what a diver 65 was in 2014 before this watch came out in 15, you know, you were deep in the, mm. you were like, wow, you are deep into it. But, but in 2015, it was like a practically like new aesthetic. Um, I mean, it actually has like supposedly the year before um, Universal Genève had a watch called the pole router, which mm -hmm. was actually a, a, a little bit similar. But in terms of people's collecting mindset in 2015, it really felt like a totally unique style with this 12963. Um, and so we looked at that and we were like, we, just this realization was, we, we could make a really interesting version of this. We could eliminate we could eliminate the date, even though it's incredibly tastefully done and just slightly cut into the six. And then if you look at some of the choices that they made in terms of how they presented the dial, 
there are ways we can both make this closer to the original and ways that we could really look at some sort of best of breed 60s features. And we could really make this, um, we could really make an interesting addition. Um, and so I think we started working on the mock-up for that piece about three days after we saw the original one. <laughs> and then it, it came out like the next year. Um, but it, it, it definitely came about because there are elements in that watch that came from some of our favorite things about watch collecting that we had observed. Like if you look at the second hand, the second, the faded tip of the second hand um, on, on your watch, Roman, mm. like that was inspired specifically by the way that Seamasters from the 90s that started out strong orange would fade um, into it where you could barely perceive um, the, the mm. orange um, due, due to sun fade. Uh, so we thought that would be a great thing to match to the patina. Uh, we thought that putting the jewel count on the dial would be would be a good idea because it's such a hit on the, some of the Sarb watches. Um, you know, so you know, we we would take inspiration from different things, and you know, that of course was on the original Diver sixty five, the the jewel count and the anti shock. Um, Hmm. yeah absolutely i mean the design tweaks you you did yeah were fantastic all all of these little things come from a love of watches oh for sure so beyond limited editions and service are there any other ways you seek a topper to differentiate yourselves i think that our person our personality the way we try to present ourselves and the way we try to be present in front of customers the way we try to lead people on sort of their path to pick what they want you know, doing our best to make sure the product offering is as interesting as it possibly can be doing our best to, but I feel like these are things that other stores do. Um, you know, we, we are, I don't want to think that everything that we do is some thing that other hardworking retailers don't do. Um, we, we, I mean, I think there are a lot of retailers that we can learn a lot from. And there are a lot of retailers in, in, you know, that, that we, that we're familiar with that certainly have a lot of lessons that, that we can learn from. I don't really know. I, I don't really, I mean, the big thing would be in March, it would have been so easy to answer this, but I guess I almost mm-hmm. feel like a little reluctant answering it now just because the COVID world. But um, I mean, Topper sponsored really, really cool watch events in the store that a lot of people would even travel from out of state to visit. Um, we would get, you know, we had such a, you know, we'd sort of showcase the culturally like best of, you know, we had such cool, like the people that mm-hmm. come to the store for the Watch the Bay events that we would host were just so down to earth and, and cool and fun to hang out with. And um, we've done a little bit online um, since COVID started, but we really miss that. God, do we miss that, my brother and I. Um, you know, having a brand come, um, getting, you know, finding a theme, getting and having these sort of fun events in the store. Um, we can't wait to get back to that when, once we can. Um, and I feel like, again, just like the limiteds, I feel like those events that we would host would be kind of a reflection of, you know, who we are. So I, I would say the, the store events, um, we've tried trend, we've, we've done a few Zoom events since then. Um, it's not the same because the thing that really made the events the best was people just getting to interact and hang out and 
we would just sort of be the backdrop. So the chat, the, like Zoom events are hard because you just don't want to come across like an infomercial. And it's hard to capture that camaraderie um, without being like an infomercial. So um, hmm. that, that's a challenge, a challenge that we still str struggle with. Um, and I think we've done some good, good Zoom events, but it's nothing like the in-person events. So are there other product lines? You know, I noticed in your site you buy gold, uh, I think offer financing. Are there other lines of business like essentially offering financing or a scrap metal business that are also part of the business? Uh, because I know lots of auto dealers have uh, you know, financing is really a core business. Um, and how do you manage the risk of that if there is with price fluctuation? Um, that's a good question. So the financing part is, I think, the, the more interesting of the two things you, you brought up. So um, I would say we we manage the risk by the partnerships we make. And this comes back to the buying group. So uh, we offer um, like deferred interest financing through Wells Fargo or Synchrony. So customers can um, spread out their payments um, with deferred interest over 12 months. And um, there's no real risk to us. It's just a little bit more expensive, but it's something that people want to do. Then we offer it. Um, we're about to uh, we're about to launch a firm, which is another deferred which is another deferred interest um, payment plan um, that we're going to launch in our ecom pretty soon. Um, so yeah, I think that's that's another thing that can be useful to a lot to a lot of people. And um, if I think it's I mean, but this is not some, I mean, I feel like m many businesses in the United States offer this. So like most people offer some kind of deferred interest financing for those who want it. Yeah, definitely. How do you think about just the risk of holding inventories? I'm guessing you hold a number of vintage watches or pre-owned watches, and then there's price fluctuations. There's all this macroeconomic stuff. Is it a consignment contract? Is it... Uh, something else. How do you hedge risk? I guess. <laughs> um, well, it's all I've known is holding inventory. So, <laughs> I uh, it's 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 all that we've known. Um, so, and as as obsessive watch collectors, we probably like we probably have more inventory than, than we need to have, but we really want to have an, an interesting offering for people, who think, for people to come in. But yeah, I mean, that's one of the great challenges of, of, of retail. And uh, there, there's very, very little on, on consignment. I mean, pre-owned watches, 90, 95% of the pre-owned at Topper are just things that people have, um, traded in to get the new piece. So like financing, taking in the trades helps make the purchase of new watches a little bit easier. Mm. And um, being with your location, being in Silicon Valley, do you think that at some point luxury technology will become a, a part of your business? You know, so we're thinking of when an Apple watch does a solid gold edition, which they did for the first or second series. And I'm sure more and more of these things will 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 come in, in, onto the market. Do you think luxury technology will at some point become something that you have to carry or will you sort of differentiate yourself from there? I feel like we're on the edges of it with, um, with the high end of G-Shock already. I mean, we sell uh, G-Shock MRG watches, which are Bluetooth synced watches. Mm. And, uh, you know, they, they, 
they perform functions that you can perform. Um, we 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 sell uh, the G Shock uh, the the G Move series, which enables you to uh, even text um, on the watch. So we're we're on the edge of that. Um, I haven't. I mean, we could have more of it than we do, and it, that all my you know my passion tends to lean towards more automatic pieces, and then that's always. The question of you know what do you want the store to be what do you want the experience to be when people uh, come in and what makes me feel so good about mrg and um and g-shock in general is just from a the perspective of a collector who loves automatic watches just how interesting and well made it is um i could see expanding it at some point but i feel like those those watches have a lot of craftsmanship to them that I think anyone into high-end watchmaking can appreciate. And when I think about how we would probably expand the business, I don't know how fast that segment would be accelerated. Um, and, the, and this is my barometer for that. Um, the most likely brand to be added at Topper is the one that the clients um, and the guests and, and our friends ask for. So I can't think of a time that somebody has asked me for a high-end tech watch that's not a G-Shock or asking me, well, why don't you bring an X? Um, there's an Apple store two doors down from Topper. So I don't know. I mean, selling Apple Watch, can I really give a better experience than the Apple store selling an Apple Watch? I don't think so. So I mean, I, I, we want to provide. We want to. We want to provide. You know, we have to be useful and have utility. I, I don't know. A, a topper edition Apple Watch could be cool. <laughs> <laughs> so circling back to where we started, you know, jewelers have been around mm -hmm. for centuries, and you know, now this has been going on in your family right. for multiple generations. What do you think it'll be like to run this in 2050? 2050? Yeah, 30 years. Um, I don't know. I think the most important thing is that you just try to be, be present and adaptive. I, I hope it's similar to how it is now. I hope we're still doing interesting events. I hope we're still creating interesting pieces. I feel like, I feel like it's just important that you try to create your own reality. And I think we're going to do whatever we can to keep having interesting pieces, keep having interesting brands, keep having as good a product offering and having great events. Um, and I think if you're focused on that every day and you just sort of are present every day, then hopefully we'll still be relevant then. Um, I think, I feel like we're in a good time for our business. I feel like Topper is a business that's growing and I feel like if we just sort of stay true to what we've been doing, we should be in a good place. I mean, the biggest thing I can tell you is there'll be, it won't be Instagram in 2050. I can promise you that. I don't know what it'll be, but there'll be some, something is going to replace Instagram and something's going to replace that and something's going to replace that and something's going to replace that. And we just have to listen sure. for what, for what it, for what it is and just really, you know, see what what moves people at the time um the themes will be different like the like the, what will appeal to people in 2050 in terms of what will be fascinating to them about like limited editions that we that we create 
it'll probably depend on the buying tastes of, of that generation. Um, probably won't be up to me what we make. Hopefully somebody will step in and make something that's cool by then. Emma, we hope you're listening. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> I'll be in the background and she'll be going, yeah, whatever. It's it's so interesting. I mean, what you say is so right, but the two adjectives that you use, present and adaptive, are really, unfortunately, not the two adjectives that spring to mind when you describe the Swiss watch industry. I mean, they're... <laughs> barely present but starting to become present uh, and you know they're certainly not adaptive or they haven't been to date which i think is a really fascinating mix of swiss traditional swiss watchmaking and you know norcal <laughs> you know ethos really interesting blend which i think why make why you are such an interesting well retailer but also you're such an interesting person influencing that direction that's really cool thank you um i, I consider myself incredibly lucky to have been sort of born into this business and you know we just every day just try to try to build on the previous day and mm. work hard so definitely try to do our best here well that's what counts so what i find really interesting is one of the ways that certainly retailers and independent retailers and good retailers can differentiate themselves is have building communities around them and hearing you talking about watch events really i think emphasizes that the human connection which really good retailers can maintain to build the community around them so which is a really wonderful thing well absolutely and um we've been lucky to make some amazing friends um rank soren on instagram um you know started watch the bay as a, a barrier uh, watch collecting group and uh, he's he's done an amazing job um, providing you know a comfortable place where where uh, people can get together and I think he's said it best when he says like the, the best thing about a watch event is unlike your personal life nobody's going to ever tell you that you've talked too much about watches and to talk about something else <laughs> So um, I think that's incredibly rare for oh, yes. a lot of people. And uh, we have guests um, who basically sometimes the first time or second time they go, it's like, you know, they have their online experience of consuming media, but they have no idea that there are other people that are as passionate about the hobby as, as they are. And it's like so many people have so much fun at these events and, uh, people that are super financially deep into the hobby, people that are just starting out. I mean, those events are, are something that, um, I'm not trying to be all dramatic, but I really miss those events. Uh, the last one we had was like in early March, like literally we had the event on a Saturday and then we had the, the shutdown on the Monday. Oh, wow. And then like the store was closed, oh, wow. physically closed for the next two, two months. Yeah, wow. Um, so, really can't wait to get back to having events yeah that would be fantastic it's safe to do so yeah as you say just getting humans to talk about watches in person is a completely different thing to a zoom call or a skype call or whatever yeah absolutely um so look let me ask you this from our discussions you know your enthusiasm and love for watches really shines through um are you a collector yourself if yes what you know do you have a particular niche that you obsess over or are you sort of you know more of a roving eye and liking everything i have a, ro a roving eye and <laughs> um i do i do have a person a personal collection um it has a lot of, of, of different elements um 
um, I mean, I'm, I, I love Seiko. So um, I, I collect vintage Seiko. I have some vintage Omega, a fair amount of vintage Omega. Um, I have a really nice 300 from from the 60s, from like 67 with really oh, wow. nice hands. Wow. Um, I love I love the sort of best of neo vintage limited editions. So I have a um, like with back to Seiko. Like I have the the Spring Drive uh, Golden Tuna Limited, um, the 62 Moss reissue. I really love. Oh wow. Um, and some really quirky stuff. Like, I don't know if you saw like the, the Zodiac rally divers that we did. Like I have a, like a Seiko rally watch from the seventies that I love oh, cool. the original James Bond Seiko golden tuna. Um, That's a I, cool could, pick. I could go on a pogue, but yes, it's deep. And um, the thing that I like, one of my guiding stars of collecting is like, what's the thematically interesting or relevant to the types of reissues that are happening. So like, I really, when the Captain Willard reissue came out um, last year, the, the SLA 033, I really wanted to find a good original Captain mm-hmm. Willard just so I could just sort of feel it and think about, you know, how the new watch was different than the old watch. So I tend to do that a lot. I tend to like to buy, sort of the inspiration behind different hot vintage pieces. And especially if we're working on a piece, uh, I like to buy originals. It's so nice to hear a retailer who's actually passionate about the products. You know, so it's not, you know, it's not just shifting units. It's not just moving SKUs from, you know, your shelf to the customers. You know, it's, right. it's wonderful to hear. And I think that's what, I mean, speaking to you now in person, that really highlights why I think the ethos of Topper is, yeah, it is such a strong community-driven, passion-driven company, which is a wonderful thing to hear. Absolutely. Now, that's awesome. The other thing that's really cool about having a collection of interesting vintage pieces that maybe people wouldn't see in a store every day is sometimes they're in people's experience looking at new watches. Sometimes it can be really meaningful to bring out an original piece of source material. Like somebody's, if somebody's looking at the the Omega 300 that was designed in 2013 and they're looking at the way the Sapphire case back looks um, and they're sort of imagining, well, how did this compare to the 60s mm-hmm. watch? It's nice to be able to pull that out for them and go, oh, here it is. Here's patient, here's patient zero. And uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I think that, that that's, that's something that helps people also see who we are. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you've told us about, and I've certainly wearing one of your awesome limited editions. Is there anything exciting in the pipeline that you can tell us about? We'll take a world exclusive every day of the week here on Fifth Wrist. So <laughs> anything you want to tell us about? Anything cooking? Yes. Oh, exciting. So the idea is I've wanted to do another Diver 65 since 2016. And we've spent years thinking about what would be interesting to do that would <laughs> be cool with the like the people that originally owned the watch would feel like it was different enough that it wasn't cramping their style um, because that would be the that would be the last thing I would ever want someone to feel from a topper limited is that we made something that was so similar to a successful design that people felt like we were just sort of going through the motions and then the people who bought the previous one would be like what the heck mm. um, so so mm. so so anyway, I've been thinking about that for a long time. And we sort of realized that the most interesting thing we could do would be to 
first of all, change the case size. So we, we really thought about the whole concept of, you know, the original Diver 65 was 36 millimeters. It wasn't a big watch or it might've even been like 35, between yes. 35 and 36, it was a little watch. So by those standards, the 40 millimeter watch that we're wearing today is a much bigger timepiece. So thinking back to that 1965 feeling of, well, what would it felt like if somebody bought this watch new? Well, we thought about pushing the size envelope even further. So the 12963 dial has never been done in a 42 millimeter Oris. All of the Orises in 42 millimeter, they have that circular dot marker ones. Yes. Um, so, and that's also been how, um, there've been a number of successful um, collaboration limited editions since the Oris Topper Diver 65 came out. Um, there's been a Houdinki one, a, um, um, there's been a Red Bar one, there's been a- Timeless Luxury did one, very yeah. Nice um, the, the revolution in the rake had the honey. There've been a number of really good ones and they've all had, they've all been 40 millimeters and they've all had those circular markers. So we thought, well, what if we took that original design, but we really just pushed the idea of, of a maxi case. Um, and we, and we did it in 42, but kept that original 12963 and every diver 65 that's come out since 2015 has been basically the concept of found treasure. The idea of a piece that mm. was discovered in the 60s has has been worn and weathered, and and then you look at it. Sometimes it's subtle. Um, sometimes you know the dials are crisp looking, but there's always that faux patina in, in, the, um, mm. in the markers. They're always cream colored or vintage inspired markers. Um, if ever there's been, yes. if ever there's been a year. When it's nice to imagine being in a different year, it's 2020. Yeah, true that. <laughs> this piece imagines like walking into a store. This is the guiding star of this piece. And walking into a store in 1965 and coming into contact with a brand new 42 millimeter piece that is up there with the biggest dive watches in the world at the time. Um, and sort of imagining how, what that would visually look like. Um, so everything about the piece, the original, um, the original design choices of like how we wrote anti-shock, how we wrote um, the font, all of that, we, in those, we pretended that all of, the, all of those choices were the correct choices. So that was sort of, that translates to the new watch. But everything is sort of imagining like you walked into Modesto, you walked into um, downtown Modesto Topper Jewelers in 1965, and you bought this 42 millimeter maxi piece. So the orange is brighter on the, mm. on the 12 o'clock pip. Instead of doing that sort of Seamaster inspired fade on the second hand, um, it's a vibrant orange. Um, and um, in, a, mm. in the loom, Instead of being vintage, it's this incredibly sharp BGW9 loom. Um, Topper LEs, as time has gone on, typically have some kind of a twist to them. And so it's important to think about this piece as not so much trying to do a literal recreation of something that was made in 1965. It's more of like a daydream of being here now in 2020, just sort of going back and imagining this thing. 
And so the twist is, of course, the loom, which would have universally almost always, you know, glowed green on those old radium pieces, um, glows blue, which, uh, according to our friend James Lambden, who runs Analog Shift, would have virtually not been a thing at all in the 60s. Uh, so the advantage of that is you get to see now this big 12963 with a much bigger dial than the 40 millimeter watch that we know now with this incredibly vibrant loom and the hope is people will look at it during the day and and feel the, you know the the sort of the pop of the colors and then when they look at it at night it'll just make people really happy seeing that huge vibrant loom blue and blue so um that's the creative thought of the piece i'm, I'm hoping that people when people see it they'll see i mean it's inescapable that you'll see the identical design language. And when you first look at it, you might be like, wow, that's so similar. But I'm hoping that people appreciate the concept behind it and um, that people that people feel good about it. And it, it provides a little bit of happy escapism uh, for people when they look at it, given especially what a hard year it's been. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I love and, and, I, and I've seen and I've seen the prototype that you've kindly shared pictures with me before the release i i mean having having owned the three of the original the 40s i can absolutely yeah. see this new 42 mil sitting alongside that in the same in my collection looking at them both going yeah that is so forward looking there's a clear evolution from the original for 2016 to this new one in 2020 yeah they're sort of almost a different watch in a sense so yeah, no, I can absolutely see both in my collection. So we, we, we should talk after the show. <laughs> uh, that's brilliant. Absolutely, yeah. We'll we'll talk serial numbers soon. Um, so when will that become available? Again, it is 2020. So um, mm. you know, got man plans and God smiles. So um, <laughs> we have been told by Oris these will all be delivered in December of 2020. So. It is, mm. it is going to have a little bit of a pre-order ramp, um, but not that much of sure. a pre-order ramp. Um, there have been times when we've done like, like typical topper pre-orders, um, I think sometimes have gone longer than we really wish that they would, because sometimes there've been some production delays, like the, um, like the topper Ninja, the SPB 107, um, Seiko, like that was announced in February. Mm. And then it delivered in July, August, September. Um, so I think we've definitely heard the feedback that people want a shorter window between when these things are announced and when they come out. So we're hoping that the less than two months will make people feel good. Um, also, we're producing a video um, with uh, Jason Heaton and James Lambden talking about sort of the concepts of this piece and sort of the genre of the skin diver in general and talking about just sort of this whole idea of, you know, what exactly would, a, would this watch have meant if it came out in 1965 and what other watches would have been out there and um, what other 42 millimeters really were there. And um, we're so lucky to have uh, James, who's one of the biggest enthusiasts and most knowledgeable vintage watch experts in the country sort of breaking it mm. down for us. And um, Jason 
incredibly knowledgeable as well. Obviously, one of the two co-hosts of the Grey NATO, I think, is going to be talking mm. a lot about what it's like to dive with skin divers and where where the skin diver, because that's what essentially what the Diver Sixty Five is. It's a skin diver, and wh- where the skin mm. diver sort of fits in. Um, and then uh, my brother and I are going to be talking a little bit about the concepts in the video and. Um, we're going to have VJ Geronimo, the North American director, just talking about the genre of the modern Diver 65. So I'm hoping people find this video interesting. Um, that video will be available and it will um, debut at a Watch the Bay event um, the, night, the, night, the night of October 9th. Oh, very cool. Yeah, super excited. And I'm sure it'll do really well. Having seen having seen the prototypes, um, I'm sure it'll, it'll do really well. It's a really, really cool piece. With now you explaining the design brief and the thinking behind it and so much love and care that it's gone into designing it exactly like it is now, that it's going to be, that's fantastic. I'm, I'm so excited for you. And I'm, yeah, I'm really glad you, you shared it with us. That's yeah, so, so cool. Well, I'm, I'm really happy to... I mean, what could be more fun than to share to share the concept with somebody that owned the original watch? I mean, you don't get to do that every day. So I, I feel really lucky that I got to talk to you about it. Oh, well, who've owned three of the original ones? And, you know, shout out to Jasper in Denmark who's got mine now. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Hopefully not four. Keep this one. <laughs> Well, if I could find a fourth one, well, maybe I can buy your one. Uh, they're getting hard to find in the market. Well, it's a perfect time to get the new one. That's that's great. I'm so excited. This one's not going anywhere. I've probably worn this watch more than any watch that we've ever come out with. So this yeah, is the it's... one that I've I've worn as my as my daily watch more than any of them. I think. Yeah, no, for sure. No, it was a great, great piece. And the new one, I'm sure, will will, will do really well. And I'm really excited. I'm so excited to to talk about it because now we, we can talk about it and I'm so excited for people to see it as well. Well, look, as we start to wrap up, um, what we use, one of the things we used to do here on Fifth Wrist is we, we ask our guests and ourselves for an Instagram recommendation of cool things for us to follow or discover to sort of expand our horizons. So I might throw to you first. Is there anybody you can recommend or any collector or brand or anything that you think would be worthwhile for people to know? I want to recommend something different than you might expect. Go for I it. I kind of alluded to it before. Um, I want to recommend Diane Evans' illustration mm. uh, because she does these these, these photos of, of, her, of herself, like selfies with sort of the it watches of the moment that are really creative um she's sort of like almost like a little bit of a like a a Liechtenstein andy warhol vibe to um you know these sort of incredible pop art pieces so i i'm i'm a huge fan of hers and um she's actually making some pictures of um of like i was saying before of emma with uh with with uh the original diver 65 and then with uh with the new, with the new, uh, with the new one that's coming out, that um, I'll, I'll send you one. It's pretty great. Uh, I'll, I'll send it to you right now, just so I can get your reaction to it. Diane's Instagram, by the way, it is um, Diane Evans Illustration. Very, very cool. So mine is I've got somebody called at watch underscore diversion. So watch underscore diversion. Uh, really, really interesting collector. Really cool mix of indies and mainstreams. Rick, it's the best. You know, Watch Diversion 
is probably has more topper limiteds than anyone else. So again, are oh, you kidding? You could not have picked a better account to follow. So he perfectly fits into the culture um, of the San Francisco Bay Area. Incredibly nice, kind, diverse collection, and um, not pretentious at all. He's I couldn't recommend him. He, he's a he, he's a great man. He's a great person too. So I'd like to recommend DM Tiffany dot time pieces. DM Tiffany period. Uh, time pieces. And the reason why I think this is an interesting account to follow is this guy is making his own watches and watch cases, dials by hand. Um, he's a machinist, great guilloche dials. And so a uh, really creative person. You should check it out. Yeah, very cool. Well, look, thank you so much, Rob, for joining us today and having a chat with Adam and I about both the the history of Topper Jewelers, the thinking behind you know your limited editions, kind of what it feels like to operate an you know an AD location in the twenty first century, and also kind of the future where you're going. So I can't thank you enough. It's been a really fascinating conversation. Oh, well, thank you. I'm I'm uh, appreciate it. Hello, hello to everyone here in in Australia, and thank you so much for uh, taking the time to listen. So I appreciate uh, you having me on and. Uh, you know, you've got a great show. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you. That's perfect. And finally, where can people find you? Where can people find Topper Jewelers? Where can they find your watches? Topper Jewelers is physically located at 1315 Burlingame Avenue and right in the middle of our cute downtown. Um, You can find Topper Jewelers on Instagram at Topper Jewelers and our website is topperjewelers.com. I think our Oris pre-order will probably be in its first day the day that your podcast goes live so brilliant and look and finally fifth we set it up as a platform by enthusiasts and for enthusiasts so if you want to join us contribute write reviews or even come on the podcast please get in touch uh, follow fifth wrist on facebook and instagram or on our website at fifthwrist.com like and subscribe to the podcast leave us a review it helps it helps to spread the word and we like the feedback as well follow me i'm at times roman au Adam is at Medium Watch, and our guest Rob is at Topper Jewelers and topperjewelers.com. Thanks for joining us today, and as we always say, stay on time. by the community for the community. We would love you to join the crew via our group chat on Slack. Email us at contact at fifthwrist.com and join the movement.